Hey, it's PF, doing an Ira Glass-like introduction to this week's episode to warn listeners that this week's episode may not be suitable for all members of the family. It's a, a pretty deep dive into a kind of a serious subject, uh, an unsolved murder from 1966, so uh, with all the parameters that involves. So if you are listening with younger family members, you may want to skip this week's episodes or maybe dive back into the archives and pull out an episode from there. But just wanted to give everybody a heads up and to thank you for listening as always now on with the show this is wcpo fm 1051 on your fm dial cincinnati ohio wkrc cincinnati this is the nation station Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 169. Today on our show, true crime author J.T. Townsend. I think there's evidence there was more than one killer. So we may have a group cause homicide there, possibly. Many people seem to think this was a professional hit. I have a hard time with that one. People speculate that Jerry Bricker was a whistleblower at Monsanto. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. You probably know J.T. best for his book, Summer's Almost Gone, which has gone into its second new and improved printing. It's about the 1966 Bricker murders, which is what we're going to discuss today. But he's also written several books about crimes, true crimes, uh, but mostly unsolved or surrounded by controversy uh, of local and national and even international interest. But again, like I said, today we're going to talk about Summer's Almost Gone, about the 1966 Bricka family murders. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it by a PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com. Chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now, let's talk to J.D. Townsend about the Bricka murders. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati. Once in a while, I'm at com in Cincinnati. Uh, it, it will just be me today. Uh, uh, ironically, Darren is uh, busy uh, assisting the Cincinnati police <laughs> and looking at some security footage from our store, uh, helping with an investigation they're doing. So, uh, Great. Yeah, yeah. Great. I, I worked with the Cincinnati police on my first two books, Cold Case Squad. I'm I'm pretty pro cop. <laughs> I would think obviously. so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been through Citizens Police Academy things, and and uh, I can remember how crazy that was. I actually shot a civilian dur- on the simulator. Oh wow! I there was virtually no time, and those nighttime traffic stops they simulated with four people in the car and a fake gun. You know, I got killed while I was clearing a house at night. All oh simulated, but still. I didn't know this was even a thing. The Cincinnati uh, Citizens Police Academy? Actually, it was the, I live in Wyoming. It was the Wyoming Police Department Citizens Academy. They have it every year. It was it was incredible. I got tased voluntarily. I got maced. Hmm. I got pepper sprayed. Had a had a dog uh, vault across the yard and jump onto my... I was wearing one of those fake arm things, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the tasing. I remember they had two officers holding me on a mat, and the guy said, you know, they clipped it to my belt and my collar. They didn't shoot me. The guy said, I'll give you five seconds or until I hear the first cuss word. Huh. I let out MF two seconds in. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. They turned it off. Oh, it was deliciously painful. Wow. So, I don't know how guys keep coming after they get hit with one of those. Yeah, that's crazy. I've seen that before with, uh, I know some comedians that do, have done military shows and then the military have taken them, you know, jumped on planes and done the dog, the, all kinds of yep. stuff. And uh, a comedian mm-hmm. friend of mine did the dog thing uh, where she was in the big full padded suit and the dogs went after yep. her. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, this was a Belgian Malinois and what surprised me was how he accelerated into the jump. I thought he'd slow down as he got close to me. Oh. Oh, no. Accelerated. He must have been in airborne ten feet, right on the right on the sleeve arm, and I had two cops hold me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was quite an experience. It, uh, you know, tough job in today's environment. I'm not sure why anybody wants to be a policeman, but uh, I got I got mad respect for him. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, are you you're from Cincinnati originally? Obviously, we were discussing this yesterday in the kind of the pre-interview. Um, yeah. So we have the uh, the obvious raised. question: What high school? Uh, Wyoming High School. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, I, I was born in Wyoming, and uh, um, my wife and I still live in Wyoming. Okay, and always interested in true crime and criminal things and, and that sort of affair. You know, people have asked me about that. Um, I was. Um, I was in fourth grade, normal fourth grade boy. You know, I was into baseball and lizards and hated girls. And I read um, Tenable Indians by Agatha Christie, also known as And Then There Were None. You know, ten people get invited to an island, some mysterious party, and then they start getting murdered. And then they realize the murder is one of them. I'd never read anything like it. Um, I was hooked, quickly became obsessed with Jack the Ripper, Lizzie Borden. And then in seventh grade, we had a serial killer running loose, a Cincinnati Strangler. And at the height of that, this beautiful family named the Brickas was murdered. I was in seventh grade. Uh, I think that's when it was really uh, crystallized, my true crime interest, what was going on in Cincinnati in 1966. Which, P.F., as you know, is the subject of my new book, Summer's Almost Gone. Yes. The Haunting Case of the Bricka Family Murders. Yeah. Now, I stumbled upon this, as I was telling you yesterday, through an article in the Cincinnati Magazine, uh, Friends of the Show. And I really didn't know much about it before then. Uh, maybe you can walk us through, uh, for those who don't know, or maybe who those who are maybe newer to the area uh, don't know about this case in depth. You could walk us through it quickly. Yeah. Well, it, it's 1966. It's September 25th. We've had a um, serial killer in Cincinnati on the loose since October of 1965. Gave him the sobriquet, the Cincinnati Strangler. So we had um, uh, four murder victims and one near-fatal assault uh, at the time the Brickers were murdered on September 25th, 1966. And um, a beautiful family, a workaholic husband, a gorgeous wife, who was uh, newspapers did not neglect to mention. She was a former airline stewardess very precocious four-year-old child. They were found uh, stabbed to death in their home right behind Western Bowl. This is a, this is a really a West Side crime, P.F. Yes, um, for sure. It's, it's, it, and if you ever spend any time on the West Side, boy, it is a, it's an interesting place, different kind of vibe. And uh, this beautiful family is stabbed to death while, while, you know, out in the uh, county suburbs, while we've got a maniac running loose in the city. And, and of course, it's Cincinnati, 
and it's the 60s. Uh, we've got Vietnam uh, War protests, race riots, you know, hippies. And, you know, Cincinnati is, is about as conservative a city as you could get. In 1966, it was downright provincial. So the, the winds of change were sweeping through here. And suddenly we have a mysterious serial killer raping and strangling elderly women. And a young, beautiful family is butchered in their own house on September 25th, 1966. And two weeks later, as if answering the Bricker killer, the Cincinnati Strangler killed Alice Hawkhausler on her driveway in the Clifton Gaslight District. She was the wife of the chief surgeon at Good Samaritan. And she was only out at midnight because she was picking up her daughter from her job because she was afraid the strangler was going to take her daughter. Oh, wow. And he got her when she was 30 feet from her back door. So if the Bricker case is the most notorious cold case in Cincinnati history, two weeks later, the murder of Alice Hockhausler, very prominent victim, is the second most notorious cold case in Cincinnati history. Because I, I wanted to clarify, because a lot of people feel the Cincinnati Strangler was identified, uh, a suspect named Posty Alasky. But um, he was convicted of an unrelated stabbing of a young woman in a taxi cab, which may or may not have been related to the rape strangulations of elderly women. So the six strangulation murders attributed to the Cincinnati Strangler are all unsolved. There were no trials, no resolution. And the Bricker case as well, after all these years, unsolved, but with a very devastating prime suspect. Well, let's start um, back with the Brickas. They're not from here. They'd only lived here a short time, if I recall. They moved here from Seattle in uh, 1963 when Jerry Bricker was transferred uh, to the Monsanto plant here locally. Okay, and uh, they weren't discovered for a couple of days, uh, as I recall, too, because uh, it was a rainy night. Everybody was in watching Bridge Over the River Kwai, I believe, was being broadcast on ABC. Absolutely. Yeah. You, know, you got a terrible night for witnesses, PF. Um, yeah. Rainy, rainy, squall-like night, and you've got the... Uh, TV premiere of an Oscar-winning film, uh, 60 million viewers that night. And I'm sure the Nielsen people would love to see something like that today, but you won't. 60 million, it was the largest audience ever for a TV debut movie. So people are inside, people aren't noticing anything. Family was killed sometime between, uh, I would say, 9.15 and, and 10 o'clock or 10.30. Nobody really saw anything, with maybe one exception. But the fact that the bodies were not discovered for 48 hours, and as we know, the first 48 is critical in solving a murder. And they lost the first 48 immediately. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, can you remember what you had for uh, for dinner a couple nights ago, P.F.? Exactly, yeah. I mean, you know, witnesses' memories fade. The events of a rainy Sunday night are moving into the rearview mirror by the time they were found. So it, it hamstrung the investigation immediately. And uh, two rumors have dogged the Bricker case from the get-go. Actually, three. The first one is the crime scene was hopefully compromised in the initial hours of discovery. 
And it certainly was. But I think every crime scene from the pre-DNA era was probably compromised to some degree. I've interviewed three men that were in that crime scene, and there was up to 30 or 40 people wandering through, uh, definitely non-essential personnel kind of thing. These journalists, cops, neighbors, who's, who are these folks? Uh, you had three or four jurisdictions of cops. You had Green Township, you had Hamilton County, you had Cincinnati. You had EMTs uh, from several locations. No journalists were allowed in, but then you had uh, the off-duty brother-in-law who was an EMT that got called, hey, you need to see this. So people are wandering through, picking things up, you know, uh, maybe making coffee, uh, sprucing up in the bathroom, uh, that kind of thing. And it wasn't until uh, the bodies were discovered about a quarter of 11, and the chief homicide investigator for the county, Herb Vogel, did not arrive until almost a quarter of one. He lived on the east side, and he had his own emergency that day. Two members of his family were in a car accident. So we had a two-hour window with no control of that crime scene and jurisdiction not really assigned because the Bricker House was in county jurisdiction. It was only two short blocks away from being in the city of Cincinnati, very close to Cincinnati jurisdiction. And um, those two hours, um, uh, actions were taken, things were done that could never really be taken back. But do I believe that the scenes were compromised to the extent that a legal resolution was prevented? No, I do not. Uh, I think the two bedrooms where the victims were found, the, the adults were found in the master bedroom, the child in her room, I think those were sealed off properly. The rest of the house, maybe not. So that's the first, uh, that was the first rumor that came about. Another rumor that eventually evolved was that the police were kid-gloving a prominent suspect. A suspect who might have been treated differently if he'd been a lower socioeconomic status. And uh, I don't believe that one either. But the biggest rumor of all, PF, as you know, Almost immediately, I think the police were still standing in the master bedroom looking at Jerry Bricka and Linda Bricka's bodies lying there. And the word came out, I heard she was having an affair. I heard she was having an affair with that veterinarian. Uh -huh. The guys I talked to on the scene said it was almost immediate. They haven't even, the coroner hasn't even come and removed the bodies, and already there is speculation that an extramarital affair by the wife had led to this brutal triple homicide. And it has dogged this case from the beginning. Uh, Linda Bricker was called a former airline stewardess for the first week. And, you know, this was the 60s, coffee, tea, or me, mm -hmm. you know, airline stewardesses. It, it, she'd only been a stewardess for eight months. I mean, she was certainly much more than just a brief stint as a stewardess. But she was a very beautiful woman, and Jerry Bricka worked 80 hours a week. The child spent a lot of time with babysitters. So there's your, uh, there's your adultery cocktail right there. And do you so, believe that, so, though? I'm sorry? Do you buy that? I do. Okay. But it's interesting, if you read the Cincinnati Magazine article, and um, if I could just interject for a minute, I have a Facebook group called Bricka Unlocked. 
We've got about 1,500 members, and we discuss this case till the cows come home over there because it is quite an obsession. And there's a, a lot of people that feel this was a different kind of crime. Um, you know, there's six, there's six kinds of, um, of uh, murders in terms of classification. I believe the Brickas were a personal cause homicide committed by person or persons who were known to the family and emotionally involved or entangled with one or more of the victims. Now, we have proponents from each of the other classifications that are out there, PF, group cause homicide. You know, like something like the Manson family or, uh, you know, two high school High school students taking a girl they don't like out in the woods and torturing her. I think there's evidence there was more than one killer. So we may have a group cause homicide there, possibly. Many people seem to think this was a professional hit. Uh, I have a hard time with that one. Uh, people speculate that Jerry Bricker was a whistleblower at Monsanto. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. Uh, people speculate that Linda Bricker's father who owned a mid-sized welding firm in Chicago, had mafia connections. I have found nothing to suggest that. And if, if, if the Brickers were a mafia hit or a mob-related hit or a contract killing, it would be almost unique in the annals of contract killing. I mean, you know, P.F., that's a bullet in the brain pan in the dark parking lot. That's not slaughtering a family up close and personal with the wet work of a knife murder. That's not professional. But by the same token, there was a degree of control at the crime scene used by the killer or killers. But, but I certainly would reject the mafia hit. Uh, was it a, a felony murder? Was it a murder committed during a, another crime? Nothing really of value taken from the house. But then we get into... Uh, the alleged rape of Linda Bricka. Uh, was she raped? Or did she merely have recent intercourse? I can tell you this, they, they did get seminal fluid out of her, and based on the rudimentary testing of the time, all they could do was a test for blood type. The blood type of the depositor of that semen had a different blood type than her husband, Jerry. Hmm. Probably the clearest evidence we have of an adulterous affair. And I do want to be clear here, uh, not not judging or shaming, looking for causation. And, and obviously adultery, uh, the FBI considers it a risk factor for homicide. Emotions can certainly run high when there's an adulterous affair, but that's no reason that a family should be killed. I've had people occasionally tell me, oh, are you slut-shaming Linda Bricka? No, absolutely not. I care very much about this family. But I believe her actions indirectly led to the murder of this family. So what happens with the investigation? Okay, we pick it up from, they're, they're found, the, the, the investigation starts around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And when you said the, uh, the head investigator shows up, how does, how does the investigation... It was 1 o'clock in the morning. Oh, in the morning, okay. <laughs> yeah. I thought yeah, it was in the... It was, went into two, they were murdered Sunday night, and they were found Tuesday night, and it went into Wednesday morning. Okay. And um, I thought the, the police, probably the key question, PF, right away, did the killer know this family 
or did he not? And they, they decided early on, the Brickers knew the killer. Why is that? We've got no forced entry. We've got no sign of a struggle. We have no defensive wounds. We have two aggressive, protective dogs who are locked in the basement TV room and are no factor against these killers. We have no furniture uh, turned over. We have no screams heard from the house. Apparently, ligatures used on the two adult victims. But um, killers spent a long time in the house. The house was ransacked, but nothing was taken. It was more like they were searching for incriminating evidence that might link them to uh, one of the victims. Okay. And so do the police zero in on anybody at this point? Or what, where does... I tell you, Wednesday, Wednesday morning, 1 a.m. and on into the rest of the week, if you knew the Bricka family, you were going to be questioned. I mean, they tore apart the personal phone book. You know, everybody had their own little personal book of numbers. If you're in that, if you're in that phone book, you're going to be interviewed. If you work with Jerry at Monsanto closely, you're going to be interviewed. If you did Linda Bricka's hair, you're going to be interviewed. If you babysat Debbie Bricka, they were going to grill you. And, and you, you, you kind of work out. You start with the, with the closest people, friends, uh, coworkers, babysitters, relatives. Who is seeing this family on a regular basis? And then you move farther out. Uh, 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 mailmen, meter men, who's, is somebody doing yard work for them? You know, do they have some furniture reupholstered? Uh, you know, is there a bag boy at, at Kroger that has a thing for Linda Bricka? You know, that kind of thing. And it takes us back to those other um, types of homicide. We talked about personal cause, group cause, felony murder, and contract murder. Lust murder. Was, was somebody lusting after Linda Bricka to such an extent that he raped her and murdered the family? And typically a lust killer, very young male, someone with a fixation, like a bag boy at Kroger's, um, like a, uh, a water meter man who saw her on a regular basis, that kind of thing. And it's interesting, P.F., the, the entire idea of Linda Bricka being raped was extremely controversial in this investigation. Um, coroner Frank Cleveland said she'd been raped. Lead investigator Herb Vogel said, not so fast. I see this as recent intercourse. And I don't know if they ever reconciled that clearly, but the farther the investigation went on, the word rape was not being used. And Today, what we have left from all this, the semen taken from Linda Bricka, Marlboro cigarette butts found at the scene, and neither Bricka was a smoker, and hair found clutched in Linda Bricka's hand has formed a DNA tripod of the killer, or at least of a subject we can place in that murder room that night. So I know what you're thinking. Hey, let's solve this thing. Not a great profile. Not a great profile at all. Yeah, you know what a great profile is? It's an O.J. Simpson number. One in 27 million men have this characteristic, and Mr. Simpson is one of them. You know, nothing like that, P.F. Um, I was told it might say, uh, might 
say one in 25 or one in 30 men have this characteristic. Those are bad odds in the DNA game. Right now, the solving of this case really rests with this DNA. And it, can it be in many cases solved yeah. through that? Has it even cases with deceased suspects? Yeah, I've heard of that because they can uh, tie it to um, surviving relatives and things like that, and kind of narrow it down from there. Is are the samples though? Have they deteriorated? Does the technology exist now, or is it getting better to where even though the samples are old, something can still be derived from yeah, them? It's a two-edged sword. The the the, the genetic material itself has degraded over time obviously before we even knew what DNA was. I mean, uh, time and moisture, the enemy of DNA. But the positive side is the methods of extraction continue to advance every year in terms of extracting DNA from the, 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 the smallest piece of evidence. So there's still optimism because of that. You know, physical evidence doesn't lie. It doesn't perjure itself. It's there. The only error comes in collection and interpretation of that evidence. Then we're back to why didn't they secure the scene better? Of course, in 1966, if you just said DNA to one of these guys on the crime scene, what you know, what are they DNA? What does that mean? Dames are not aggressive. <laughs> I mean, seriously, <laughs> 1966, they had no concept. Fingerprints were their DNA back then. And even with a fingerprint, you need a clean, hard surface to leave one. You know, they never got any good prints off that site. They got a couple of hand prints. But everybody that was talked to as a person of interest was asked to give um, uh, hair and blood samples and also fingerprint samples. And most people cooperated. But, P.F., that brings us to the one guy who didn't. And that would be? Dr. Fred Leidinger. Here we go. Now, again, backtracking. The brickas aren't even out of the house. The dead bodies aren't, haven't even been moved. They're still in the bedrooms. Linda, Jerry, and Debbie. And Fred Leidinger's name has come up at the crime scene. It's already come up. I mean, the west side is like a uh, small-town city, you know, uh, rife for rumors, uh, you know, it's just that kind of atmosphere, you know, the, the small town city. And um, Fred Leininger eventually became the focus of the investigation. Uh, Linda Bricka, believe it or not, had gone to work at his veterinary clinic the week before the murders. She has known Fred Leininger since the family moved there in 1963. Linda Bricka was fanatic about her animals. Certainly an animal rights activist ahead of her time. And she knew Fred Leininger since uh, 1963. But she and her family are only murdered the week after she goes to work for him. That sticks in my craw. I mean, think about it. You've known this guy for three and a half years. You know, you've taken your dogs there. You're on friendly terms with this veterinarian, maybe even more than friendly. But she goes to work there Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of the murder week, and she and her family are murdered Sunday night. 
what changed in her life the week of her murder? What was different going to work there? Other than that, a fairly normal week. Obviously, in a crime of this type, PF, who did the victim have contact with? If it is a personal cause murder, and I do believe it is, who has contact with the victim that week? I mean, think about what we see today in these crimes. What's the cell phone records tell us? Do you see how many crimes are getting solved by cell phone records? Oh, yeah. I watch Dateline. Yeah, I mean, you called the, you called the victim 15 minutes before they were murdered? You, would, you, you actually spoke to him six times that day? And you can find where the phone was at, even. They can ping it and they get it down exactly. to within, within a and, couple and, hundred and feet our, now. Our cell phone shows you on their street at the yeah. time of the murder. Yeah, so we've got none of that in 1966. We've got none of it. The, the, the only thing they can really do is put together a catalog or laundry list of people who had contact with the family, start with your primary and then go to the tertiary or secondary. And you have to look at anybody. If a guy did an upholstery quote in 1963, you got to find that guy and talk to him. Linda Bricka apparently invited a, a bear trainer over to their house for dinner in 1964, kind of an itinerant guy. They had to find him. It could have been something done years before that somebody let fester, and they finally acted on it. Um, Linda Bricker had an argument on her front porch with a route salesman two weeks before the murder. It was a company called the Jewel Tea and Spice Company. And they rented coffee makers and you know, they delivered coffee and tea and other products. But she tried to return a coffee maker and this guy flipped. They had a horrible shouting match on her front porch. She even told her mother about how frightened she was of this guy or how how mean he was and two weeks later they're dead it turned out this guy had apparently uh stabbed a woman in 1960 while raping her hmm and they were able to clear him and that they could not put him anywhere near the west side at the time of the murder but this is the kind of thing apparently she was very upset by her interaction with this man and uh Maybe he uh, let it fester. So they interviewed over um, 400 people. And this, again, this is 1966 PF. Consider the logistics of this investigation. You don't have a computer. You've got a typewriter. You know, you don't have cell phone records. You've got cops walking around the neighborhood knocking on doors. Your only viable strategy when you have a suspect pool this large is elimination. You are looking for ways to eliminate suspects. And they got it down to a, to like a top five that they really weren't quite certain about. And wouldn't you know it, three of them were veterinarians. Linda Bricka's love of animals seemed to have some bearing on this case. And do you think those are the are a good five suspects? Because I remember seeing you interviewed on Channel 5, and you had mentioned that it, it was down to five suspects. Do you agree with that list? Um, I, got a, I got a top five. Three are dead, two aren't. Excuse me, four are dead, one isn't. We lost one, uh, lost one last fall. Pretty solid guys. 
of, of all the interviews in the um, in the case file I looked at, they've got 16 of them marked with asterisks, and they've bolded them in the file. And these are the 16 where they felt, okay, it's one of these guys. And Fred Leininger, his interviews were bolded. A uh, veterinarian named Herman Rader, who had stabbed people in his past. <laughs> I know, yeah, stabbed people in your past. He was there. Dr. Stanley Keller, close friend of Leininger, uh, whenever they interviewed him, the cops' hackles just raised. You know, there was something bent about this guy. He was evasive. So you got the three vets there. And um, then, P.F., you have local celebrity Glenn Ryle, a.k.a. Skipper Ryle. Oh, I did uh, not know that. You're too young to remember that, aren't you? I know the name. Uh, I've lived here since 1994, and of course, working for Cincy Shirts, I've, I've, I've had to brush right. up a lot on my Cincy, Cincy history. Uh, I know the name Skip Ryle, but again, for those for the transplants in the audience like myself, uh, a quick a quick summation. Glenn Ryle, um, he was a kiddie show host in the 60s, uh, second only to Uncle Al in popularity, and he was an interesting guy. He was a close friend of Dr. Fred Leininger. He was a he was a big guy. He was former military, special forces trained. I thought he I was on his show. I thought he was kind of creepy. Hmm. I've gotten some flack on social media when all I've done is point out that Glenn Ryle was interviewed in connection with the investigation, and they flagged the interview. And the comment in the file was he is obviously a close friend of Dr. Fred Leininger, and we should not expect him to cooperate. But if Leininger's involved and he has an accomplice, Raider, Keller, Ryle, those would be three close friends he might turn to. Also, his brother-in-law is someone I think he might have turned to. And we could speculate a lot. Okay, Leininger's having an affair with Linda Bricka. What if she's pregnant? Fred Leininger is a prominent businessman. Uh, a thriving practice. He's married. He has five children under the age of 10. The scandal on the West Side, if this comes out, would be ruinous, I think, to his career and his social standing. And he was very concerned with that. If she's pregnant, double that. I mean, you know, this is, this is, this is Cincinnati, 1966. You know, it, it's, a, it's a puritanical state. You know, Cincinnati was like your maiden aunt with all the cats. <laughs> you know, would Mark Twain say the world were coming to an end? I'd move to Cincinnati and have ten more glorious years. I like all those guys. The three, the two vets, uh, Glenn Ryle and the brother-in-law. I mean, if 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 the woman you're having an affair with is getting ready to ruin your life or really causing problems, who do you call to help you do something? And who knows what the plan was when they went over to the house that night? You know, was, was murder the plan? Hard to say. There was a carving knife that fit the wounds missing. It was one of the few things missing from the house. And let's go back to the old Edmund LeCard principle, the, the, the original godfather of forensics. The killer always leaves something with himself at the scene and take something of the scene with him. And what did he leave? Seminal fluid, Marlboro cigarette butts, and maybe some hair. What did he take? That knife. 
And by the way, he left one other thing. They found a piece of tape on Jerry Bricka's face. He'd been gagged, socks stuffed in his mouth. And this piece of tape was exhaustively analyzed. Very unusual width. It was, you know, it was one of the few things in the house that you couldn't reconcile with the house. There was no such tape like this in the house. It came back as a waterproof medical or veterinary grade tape. Hmm. So, yeah, again, the veterinary connection. Linda Bricker was nuts about animals, P.F. She had spent time at the Shrine Circus in April of that year and somehow winnowed her way into taking care of animals for these traveling animal acts. You know, these carny guys who have elephants and monkeys and bears. Oh, my. And... Some people speculated, what did she do to get this access with these guys? Because nobody else was allowed to take care of the animals behind the scenes. But she was seen there uh, with with a, a, taking care of a bear, taking care of some monkeys, riding an elephant. So this is an attractive woman. How did she gain access with these guys? That kind of thing. So that's another theory they looked at, not just the vets. Was it some animal trainers? You know, what was she doing to gain this access? So getting back to Fred Leiniger, as I recall, maybe I think seeing from one of the interviews with you, she isn't, she doesn't go to work for a couple of days. Is she supposed to be at work and just doesn't go in? I didn't understand. Is this maybe, did she would, did she reject his advances or did, was there some sort of an assault and she got upset and then didn't show up? What's good questions. I, I can tell you this, she worked the, the week before the murders, and I encourage everyone to read the book, Summer's Almost Gone, obviously. I've got massive detail. And if you're if you're obsessed with the Bricker case, no detail is too small for you. <laughs> she worked Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday only. Wednesday night, getting off work at 9, she didn't come home till almost 11. She was drunk, and she seemed to be upset. And Jerry Brickett was furious and, according to a neighbor, said something like, I need to go over there and beat him up, meaning Leininger. Oh. Now, they're dead in four days, so he's making a threat against Leininger. And Linda Brickus stayed two hours after work, came home intoxicated and visibly upset. So I wish I, I'd really like to know what happened at the Glenway Animal Hospital between 9 and 11 on the Wednesday night before the murders. Because I think I think that's when the seed of murder was planted. You know, uh, I see it in crimes all the time. It's like the old law of nature. Someone takes an action. Someone has a reaction. And then there's a consequence. You know, uh, did Linda Bricker push somebody into a corner somehow? But to get back to your original question, before I was in the case file, PF, I always assumed, okay, Leininger was obsessed with her, and she ended it. Once I got in the case file, I no longer started thinking it was a single killer, and I think she was a threat to Leininger. I think this murder was about covering up scandal, was about not having your life, your comfortable life, destroyed by your uh, girlfriend. You know, not having your marriage and your business and all that dragged through the mud. 
Um, I think this crime, rather than an obsession, I think this crime stank of fear. What could this woman do to me? You know, and Linda Bricker had told several people three weeks before the crime that her period was late. There's nothing in the autopsy that says she was pregnant. But had she been pregnant, and PF, this dovetails into another tremendous series of rumors. I can't tell you how many rumors I have fielded about this case. It, 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 it's, I've lost track of them. All of all my 13 chapters in Queen City Gothic, Bricka has fielded more rumors than the rest of them combined. But again, you hear these rumors that some West Side veterinarians were performing backdoor abortions. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. And the names Keller and Raider have come up, not so much Leininger. But, you know, what was she so upset about Wednesday night uh, before the murders? And is this ever proven or is this just a rumor? It's just rumors. Okay. But... But, you know, one of my rules, one of my top ten rules for Citizen Sleuths is uh, a rumor is often a premature fact. Hmm. Most, most rumors kind of are built around some kind of core truth somewhere, or at least a lot of them are. That being said, I've heard just absolutely crazy rumors about Bricka that are just almost laughable. You know, uh, the satanic cult rumor seems to have legs. And there were a lot of satanic cults in south uh, southwestern Ohio in the 60s, and they were into animal sacrifices. The rumor was Leininger was supplying drugs to anesthetize the animals, so, you know, it wasn't too cruel to kill them. And if Linda Bricka finds out about that while she's working there, she's not going to let that go on. Not at all. And... Apparently, these satanic cults not only sacrificed animals, but they uh, molested children. I interviewed a woman who, in great detail, told me about being molested by this group, how they were connected to the Bricka case. We drove around the west side. She showed me where she had been taken, where she had been uh, molested by this group, showed me where all these people lived. And when I left that interview, I'm like, this woman is either the Meryl Streep of actresses, or she's literally reliving this horrific event. And apparently, Linda Bricka found out what they were doing with the animals and threatening to turn the whole group in, and that's why they were murdered. It sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? It does, or you could even say that maybe uh, you said Laniger could have been implicated for supplying... The, uh, the the drugs to anesthetize the yeah. animals and yeah so it mm-hmm. t- you go off in all kinds it's it kind of spider webs out doesn't it a lot of a lot of break-ins at vet clinics that summer and animal tranquilizers were stolen and the funny thing is for me PF I, I got an email about that oh I don't know ten years ago this guy said this is definitely a group of people very powerful, very dangerous group. They've killed the Brickers. They mentioned some other cases I was familiar with. Yeah, they did those too. And since then, uh, I was given a name of, of, of the suspect. He was a former Cincinnati police officer. I'm not going to name him. But since the initial email identifying this individual, I've had six other people independent of each other 
people that didn't know each other also identified this former Cincinnati policeman as the killer. Why would these six people who don't know each other come up with the same name? That's, that's, a, that's unusual, isn't it? So he's on the list of five. I've got him just outside that. He's probably okay. in my top ten. Okay. I don't know what to think about this story. On its face, it almost sounds absurd. But, but then things start linking up. Um, I have another detective saying, P.F., there's no such thing as a coincidence. We know there is, but I think in true crime, you have to recognize, um, you, you know, uh, the, the uh, relationship between events and facts that don't seem to be connected, you know, but are. Yeah, I'm not you sure know, I buy that cold, one. The and... cold logic of, hey, there's eight things that point to this guy. He's either really unlucky or he's the killer. And, you know, I have a one of my pet peeves, and you're probably, you're a younger guy, P.F., and you're, you're probably along with... Not, not much. Everybody, <laughs> everybody's into the forensics now. Yeah. You know, it's like, you, you tell somebody you've got a great circumstantial case, and, and they just they just yawn. You know, and when did circumstantial evidence become so so unimportant? I, I don't. I, I just don't get that. The whole coincidence thing. Coincidences are rare, but if you understand the cold logic of these seemingly random events, you're gonna find you're gonna find a killer. I had a quote in. Um, you know, I do literary quotes at the beginning of my chapters. Always, Edmund Pearson, the great crime writer. When seven or eight clear items of circumstantial evidence point directly to the guilt of a person, that person is innocent nowhere and in a detective novel. I put 13 pieces of circumstantial evidence against Leininger. You know, in a legal system, I don't even know they could have gotten an indictment off that. Obviously, they didn't feel they could. But in the court of the armchair detective, dude, how unlucky could you be? If you're innocent, to have these things pointing at you, just how unlucky do you have to be to have all these things pointing at you? Somebody needs to come up with a circle, circumstantial evidence parameter rating where you, you, you throw in all the coincidences and you extrapolate it and you think, you can, hey, there's a 98% chance this guy's the killer based on this and has nothing to do with forensics. But I like you know, I like circumstantial evidence. You know, is it coincidence or collusion, you know? That kind of thing. I don't like to denigrate circumstantial evidence, but in the with the with the CSI of true crime fans that's going on now, you know, well where's the DNA? That's just kind of all they say. Well so another that's my that's my own little peeve there. Okay. And another people say circumstantial evidence is a chain. Well, I can snap that chain. I can snap this link. No, it's not a chain. It's a rope with many strands. You want to take away a few strands from my circumstantial evidence rope? Go ahead. I've still got a strong rope. So another piece of uh, evidence that we have is that the, the young Debbie probably knew the killer or could identify the killer. Absolutely. I interviewed the babysitter extensively. A tearful interview. She just relived the whole thing. She loved this family. She was 18 years old. 
Debbie was four years old and talked like she was 10. She could recognize people. She called Fred Leininger Uncle Fred and certainly could have recognized someone like Glenn Ryle, Skipper Ryle. So everybody, I think what incenses people about this case, why did you kill the child? Was that necessary? Yes. I mean, that's just often in a crime of passion. If we're considering Bricka a crime of passion with some control, you know, these two adults are killed passionately. This is some rage going on in that room. They step next door to the child's room, and often after a rage killing, someone can be killed out of fear. That four-year-old child was a danger to them. They were afraid of her. No other reason to kill her. None whatsoever. I sometimes go back to the Lizzie Borden case, PF. It's one of my favorites. Yes. Certainly one of the most bizarre double homicides you'd ever see because um, the stepmother, Abby Borden, was hacked to death at 9.30 in the morning. 20 blows. This was Lizzie Borden despising this woman. Just an orgasm of hate. That she had 90 minutes before her father came home. And would he protect her? He would certainly know that she had killed his wife. She was afraid of him. The murder of Andrew Borden, she leaned around the corner while he was sleeping. The door jam and hit him ten times. The blows were weaker. So you have a rage killing upstairs with a stepmother, followed by 90 minutes of her thinking, do I kill my father or do I not? And she decides to take him out and make it look like a maniac got in the house. And since she was acquitted, she was successful in that. Rage killing of the stepmother, fear killing of the father. Uh, rage killing of Jerry and Linda Bricka, fear killing of Debbie Bricka. Makes it an interesting mobile homicide, but with different motivation. So um, I want to make sure we get to some things here before we hit the top of the hour, because I know we, we have some time constraints on, on both sides of the microphone here yeah, today. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm just jabbering away. Oh, sure. No, 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 you're, you're fine. I think this is a, a, a good place to, to wrap things up and also to remind folks that, well, first of us cover the, the Bricka book. It's, you said it's going for a second printing. It is. We, uh, we sold the first 5,000 copies. We're in a new printing, hardbound only, and we do have the ebook out there. But I'd like to point out people on my website, jttownsend.com. This is a hardcover book at the softcover price, $19.95, and we'll be running specials $5 off probably all year. It's a steal. This is a 450-page book. Uh, it covers the Brickham murders, the Strangler murders. We've got cameo appearances by Richard Speck, Charles Whitman, the Zodiac, Ted Bundy, Valerie Percy murder. It's got over 130 images. If you've seen one of my books, I don't stick 15 pages in the middle of the book. I put the photographs where you need to see them. And I'm always generous with them. And um, you mentioned the Facebook page, of course, about the, the Bricka murders where people can go and uh, discuss. Uh, the group is called Bricka Unlocked. Certainly, uh, uh, anybody from the West Side or anybody obsessed with this case needs to be in on this group. A lot of confidential stuff going on over there. Um, and again, the website is jttownsend.com. 
that's the cheapest place you can buy the book. You know, I've had pretty good reviews. Um, really quick, I had a difficult choice when this book went to print, and I've died a thousand deaths because of it. The day before I was sending it off to the printers, I sat there and I go, what does this book need? What is it missing? All I had was grainy newspaper images of the victims. And that night, P.F., I made one more call to Linda Brickett's brother. I'm like, dude, you promised you were going to send me some good pictures of the family. Well, his wife answered. And I told her what was going on. And two days later, I had a FedEx on my door, 50 pictures, intimate family portraits of Jerry, Linda, and Debbie Bricker, including their wedding album. And I managed to get 30 of them into the book. We had to pull it out of the schedule. But what I lost by getting those photos in was the final proofreading. Ah. And the first book went out with some little, a few typos here and there, and a few little spacing issues. It wasn't a pristine book. Now, it wasn't every page. It wasn't even every other page. But here and there, there was little glitches. And look at the choice I was faced with. I could have put out a pristine book with really crappy images, or I could have put out a book with stunning images of the victims, knowing there was a glitch or two here or there. Unfortunately, on some of my Amazon reviews, people pointed it out. You know, I can't argue with them, but it was such a hard choice. I either had to do the proofread and keep the photos out, or put the photos in and just trust that there weren't too many mistakes. Uh, this new printing, perfect. Cool. Uh, this is the book I wanted to put out originally, this new printing. Okay. So that first one, if you have it, let that be your collector's item. Okay. Uh, I even changed the undertitle. It's now The Haunting Case of the Bricker Family Murders. Okay. So uh, and- I'm hoping to certainly hoping to get more people to buy it. It's weird, P.F. I still run into people that live on the west side that have never heard of this case. Well, they might be transplants or maybe haven't lived uh, in the other. Like, I've only... actually lived there in 66, and I'm like, yeah. what rock were you under? Yeah. You could not know about this. And yeah. They're instantly fascinated. I just found out about this case. The thing I find um, interesting yeah. is that how, how do you live in the murder house? Because the house is still there. People live in it. Yeah, indeed it is, sir. It's, that's um, just, I could... Just changed hands um, two years ago. Interesting. Real estate agents, PF, are only required to divulge um, uncomfortable history of the house if it occurred within the last two years. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm aware of that now, one. I, I had a friend who was showing the house, a real estate agent. She said, I told the people up front. I mean... A, a gruesome triple homicide that's unsolved, you have to tell people. Yeah, especially a famous one like that, for sure. Because people still drive by that house and slow down and stop and point. Uh, and the agent, the agent, my friend, told me some of these people weren't even serious buyers. They just wanted to walk through. Oh, I'm sure. Pure and simple. But yep. it's still there. You know, um, the Lizzie Borden house is still there in Fall River. My wife and I spent... Uh, oh two nights there uh, and I, we slept in the murder room where the stepmother got it oh my god uh, I couldn't do it yeah. <laughs> and I'm not a believer in ghosts I or... my camera on a tripod yeah with natural gas light I took about a hundred photos inside that house I got two with paranormal activity see I'm not I a think. believer and I still couldn't do it 
that's the, that's uh, the strange thing. I'm not really into paranormal either, but I had a couple things in two of these photos I couldn't explain. And paranormal people will tell you if a ghost has a reason to haunt, it's because they were the victim of an unsolved murder. Yeah, I've heard that. We did yeah, have yeah. we did have two of them in the brick house there. Yeah. So, but yeah, a good good point. How do you live in a house like that? Yeah, that's just. Don't know. Well, I think that, again, there's a good place to, to wrap it up. We have one final bit of business uh, on the show. Of course, we let our guests choose the uh, coupon code that, that uh, listeners can use to take 20% off their CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com oh. order. So you get to pick the coupon code, which will be good for the next week until the next episode drops. So, uh, JT Townsend, what would you like that coupon code to be? Bricka? Yeah, that's uh, appropriate. Okay, we'll go with that. B-R-I-C-C-A, oh. correct? B-R-I-C-C-A. Okay, cool. All right, folks, we'll use that to take 20% off your uh, CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order or go into either of the two stores. And uh, J.D. Townsend, we're going to talk again uh, soon, I know, because you have a whole other books and a whole other unsolved Cincinnati murders and Um, crimes to talk about, So we'll and even some national ones. I would really like to talk again. We've we've got tons of Cincinnati cases. Yeah. And I'm the foremost Midwestern expert on the JFK assassination Jack the Ripper, Lizzie Borden, and the Lindbergh oh, gosh, we got, got tons to and get I to. astounding viewpoints on all four of them. Great. All right. Awesome. I'm interested in, in all of those. So, uh, terrific. And then hopefully the the, the, the lads can join us uh, in a future episode as well. I'm sure they'd be keen uh, to learn about this stuff as well. Just but it's kind of a crazy busy week for us and for you too. And again, thank you for taking the time, this hour out of your schedule to, to help us no get problem. this it done. Out. And uh, again, we will, we will speak to you uh, soon. I'll be back in touch and we'll have you on again, certainly to discuss more Cincinnati crimes and like it's even some of these other uh, national okay. and global uh, uh, crimes as well. Well, thanks again, yeah, JT. When, uh, we'll, I'll talk to you later. Well, I hope, hope you have me back sometime. I'd, I'd love to take down JFK assassination conspiracy people. Oh, yeah, sounds good. I love chopping them down. It was Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone, and if you study Lee Harvey Oswald and study the evidence, it, there's no mystery. Yep. Okay, great. Well, we'll, we'll certainly get to that in a future episode. Okay. All right, thanks, thanks JT. Yeah. All right, bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye. You left me T. Townsend. Yeah, I knew a little bit about that. Uh, if you're from the Cleveland area like I am, of course, our big unsolved murder is the Sam Shepard case, which you may know if you even if you don't live in Cleveland. Uh, the Fugitive was based on that, even though they insist that it was not, but it pretty much was. So anyway, it, it seems like every city has at least one or two cases uh, like that. Uh, that's ours. Like I said, JT's got lots of other books about uh, true crime here in Cincinnati or unsolved crimes in Cincinnati. So do check those out. And also, uh, JT was suggested to us by a listener. And I don't even think the listener knows JT, but is reading his book, and she suggested, hey, you should have JT on the show. So we did. So toward that end, uh, if you want to suggest a guest for the show or even a topic, just email us podcast at cincyshirts.com, put podcast guest or subject in the subject line, and just give us a few sentences about why you think we should discuss either this subject or have this person on the podcast. Simple as that. Now, be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area, but still feel connected to the tri-state. And as always, 
always, if you haven't already, do go back and check out the Cincy Shirts podcast archives. Lots of great episodes back there. Today's show is produced by me with all from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. Find their music in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more up to, well, gosh, 36, 37 cities now at Old School Shirts. Dot com. Lots of defunct sports teams, old malls, old restaurants, old, any old brands you can think of from those particular towns, like Cincy Shirts, but for those particular communities. And again, the promo code for this episode is BRICCA, simple as that, B-R-I-C-C-A, the subject of today's episode, of course, all uppercase, all lowercase, that part does not matter. You can use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order, or you can go into the stores and over the Rhine and Hyde Park and use that podcast code to take 20% off your order. So follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest in C-Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. I said goodbye